Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we explore the latest in blockchain technology and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna. And me, Frederick. In this episode, we sit down with Liz and Chris from Least Authority to talk about privacy, transparency, confidentiality, and their private payment protocol, P4. In today's episode, we want to talk about a couple things. We want to talk about privacy, we want to talk about security, and we want to talk about P4. With us today is Chris and Liz from Least Authority. Hey, guys. Hey. Hello. And Frederick. Hello. So we were talking about this before. I wanted to say the P4 protocol, but I was told that protocol is in, is in the name. Is in, it's one of the four Ps. So maybe you guys can just explain what is P4. Uh, yeah, so the name uh, P4 means Private Periodic Payment Protocol, and it's kind of a double plan word. So on the one hand, it is an homage to S4, which is our simple secure storage service. This is a, a cloud backup and file synchronization service for which P4 was originally designed and intended. Uh, but it's also, on the other hand, a critique of Bitcoin's BIP70, which is named the payment protocol, and which is something that's been widely criticized in its design. So on the one hand, it was criticized for being highly centralized around the existing X509 certificate authorities infrastructure, uh, which is, you know, this really closed and centralized markets. And it's also been criticized for being open to KYC and AML-style AML identity surveillance uh, using client-side certificates. So... What we wanted, um, on the one hand, we had this very specific motivation to accept payments in a way that's consistent with the values of our existing S4 service, um, since, you know, we offer this private by design storage service, which can't read or modify data. Uh, but on the other hand, we also kind of had this broader motivation to try and tackle this bigger and overarching problem of accepting subscription payments with cryptocurrencies and to do so in a privacy preserving manner. But I mean, that's that, that's a really hard problem. And maybe we should talk more about it. Um, I'm just thinking our audience doesn't really know that much about you guys yet. Why don't we also do a little bit of an intro? Now let's start with Liz. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, Liz. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about yourself. Actually, you've already been on this podcast. A while ago. A while ago. What number are we at now? I think it was, I think you were number like 10, 10 yeah. or something like that. What number are you on now? 70. 70 something. This 75. 75. Wow. Something like that. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. Um, well, I'm Liz Steininger from Least Authority. Um, I'm not going to say a whole lot about me. Can I talk about Least Authority? Sure. <laughs> more, more interesting, I think. Um, yeah, we're we're a Berlin-based company, um, but we have a team of you know, mostly remote people around the world working on a mission where we genuinely care about security and privacy. Um, we care about people being able to have. Uh, the freedom to operate online um, in a in a privacy preserving way, um, and so we look at so we do things um, that enhance security to enable more privacy on systems. We do this through things like security audits and security consulting with other projects and other companies, and we also do. Um, some software development of our own with um, contributions to open source projects and just activities within the community. We care about privacy by design, um, you know, helping people to understand these topics. So yeah, we just do a lot around that. Something I don't think we dug into much uh, when you were on the show before was why did you get involved with this? Like what was the trigger that made you think like, this is something that I have to work with? I've cared about open source personally for a long time. I think that's actually what we talked a lot about um, at the last episode. I, I, for me personally, I really care about just people having the freedom to choose um, and also the freedom of information. I think that transparency is really important. Information is power. And if people aren't able to have private communications, then being transparent to the rest of the world kind of disempowers people in certain positions and empowers other people in other positions. And so I think it's really important within society for us to look at the scale of transparency versus privacy and where do we enable certain power structures. And so my background was more in open source and transparency and getting information um, out to people. 
and I worked on that side of things. And then I realized that I also need to work on the other side of things. And then so I came over to the the other side of security and privacy and started working more in this space. And and Chris, this is your first time on the podcast. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so my name is Chris Wood, and I work with Lease Authority, uh, primarily on the product side of the company as a developer. So my official job title is actually lead UI and UX developer, but I always say it's a little bit misleading since right now I'm the only UI and UX developer, so there isn't really anybody for me to lead. And secondly, I spend an increasing amount of time wrestling with problems um, and designing systems that extend, I guess, beyond mere UI and UX work. So for example, uh, key recovery systems, payment systems, uh, secure communication channels, build infrastructure and security, and so on and so forth. So that being said, I tend to think of myself, I think more broadly as like a privacy engineer or a privacy architect. That is, as someone who's primarily concerned with building and designing more holistic software systems that maybe cultivate, preserve, or otherwise aim to protect user privacy and other related rights and values. So, of course, that often involves making existing crypto systems and security applications more accessible and easy to use. But it also involves, I guess, designing new systems from the ground up that are more difficult to abuse by attackers. So specifically because they might incorporate privacy by design principles from their very inception. So things like end-to-end security, client-side encryption, anonymous identities, and so on. Uh, beyond that, I am a free software advocate. Um, I've been using free software uh, pretty heavily, I guess, since the late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, cryptocurrency enthusiast as well. Before joining Lisa Authority, I spent over a decade teaching philosophy as a professor in various places across Canada. So my background, like Liz, is is a little bit different in that I was kind of observing this from the outside and then realized that I needed to get involved more directly and to build tools that could be used by ordinary humans. Well, I'm curious, uh, when you say free software, what is free software to you? Do you are you a Stalinist or uh, anything that is open source? Uh, yeah, I would put myself more in the Stalinist category. So um, I... I don't even know if I have any closed software in my house. Actually, my, my phone is entirely free software. My TV is totally free software. Uh, pretty much everything is free software. So, um, but a part of the reason that, that I do that isn't just for the ideological reasons, but I'm also very curious as to what some of the challenges are to actually, you know, live a life that <laughs> is aligned with only using free software. So I, I, I like to kind of challenge myself in that regard to not go over to the dark side as much as possible. What was that word you just used? So Stallman is, I guess, a computer science professor that sort of founded a lot of the free software movement. I don't know, did he write GPL or is it just like, do I just associate that with him for some reason? I don't know, but he's he's like this figurehead in, in free software movement. He is quite the character. He, Yeah, he is the founder of the free software movement. Um, I believe he wrote most of the Emacs text editor, the GCC compiler. Um, I don't know how much of the GPL he wrote. I believe it was him and a few other people. But yeah, he's been very heavily involved with this um, for quite a long time. What I'd like to hear, kind of going back to your question, Frederick, that you just asked Liz, was like the the why, like why you got in. Can either of you pinpoint maybe like an occurrence or some event or something that you that happened either to yourself or externally that really made you realize how important this was or how threatened our privacy is and how and what the impact of that could be. Every day I read the news. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no, it's every day we see all these different articles about how our information has been leaked. Um, but for, yeah, I'm, for me, an exact moment? That's such yeah. a weird thing. I don't think people, I don't think it really maybe ha- a, That's like Maybe a period of time then. Maybe it's like, was there a turning point for you? Was there a point where like you actually... T- trusted most systems and then all of a sudden you were like there is something broken here i mean i definitely i hit a turning point but more on the transparency topic and when i realized that in how much information is actually power but i was working for the u.s federal government helping with the information dissemination program they basically collect all this stuff this all this information that the government is publishing and then try to make sure that it gets disseminated to the public and 
I, that's, that's when you start to realize that there's really important information in these, in these publications, in these documents, in these books that can really change the course of people's lives. Even something like knowing like water quality, like EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency in the United States would put out reports and stuff. To read those, then you can make more educated decisions in your life. And so you start to realize how powerful information is. But then it's interesting because now it's privacy. And yeah. I wonder, like, privacy sounds like the opposite a little it bit is. of what you're yeah. describing. It's like, you were like, oh, th- information is important. We need to get it out there. But privacy is actually kind of the opposite. And I, yeah, it, but this is also the conversation that comes up with open source software. You know, the conversation of how is open source code more secure than closed source code. And a lot of people, it's, it's, it is that kind of backwards thinking, but it's this idea that there are certain things that need to be open for assessment. And then there's other things that need to be closed. If you are a company or an organization that's making claims about your software, you need to be able to open it to kind of like prove that there's that other people can independently verify that this is what this is doing what you say it will do and then you compare that to the individual user of that software and that individual user of the software they're not in that position of power there's like this uh different balance that happens and i think that this happens with governments versus the individual this happens with corporations versus the individual and so when you get into these collections of people that are organized for a particular purpose they should be open and accountable for what they're doing um but then the power structure versus an individual they need to that individual needs to have control over their information because it's it's just them they're you're alone and and then it also comes into identity chris i want to throw the question over to you do you have sort of a turning point moment or did was there something where you were like wait a second something's wrong or was it like a slow kind of realization yeah, that's that's a really good question because like I could probably point to a whole series of different moments that might have led to I guess where I am right now. But I mean, historically, I've always been I guess something of a turbo nerd, <laughs> if if want to use that term. And so I, I've been mostly adept at computers. And if something didn't exist and I wanted it to exist, I, I would try and create it myself. Um, so with regards to like joining Lisa Authority, I, I was pretty disappointed in all of the current cloud storage services that were out there. So I I just kind of decided to start hacking on my own. And a couple of people kind of found out about it and the way that it complemented Tahoe LEFS, which was the S4 service. And so I kind of joined Least Authority just through my own, I guess, selfish motivation of trying to create a better cloud storage tool. Um, But beyond that, though, I think I have kind of observed this, this gradual cultural shift where everything that we see now is moving online. And as somebody who grew up on IRC in the 1990s, um, I kind of know how bad computer security is, right? And like just how terrible things can be if the systems aren't properly secured. So for me, um, I think, yeah, I started to kind of discover cryptography, I guess, in the late 2000s. Um, I, I remember one particular eye-opening moment. I was reading Bruce Schneier's textbook. I think it's called Applied Cryptography. And there is this one section in it where he is talking about how much energy would be required to brute force attack a 128-bit key. And essentially, the answer is that it is secure until the universe ends, right? Like, you would require so much power that you'd have to burn through the entire energy of the sun in order to like brute force attack this specific key. So I had this kind of realization there that, wow, you know, if, if you use cryptography, you can secure things in a way that not only guards them against, you know, guns and explosives, but that actually uses the very laws of physics themselves to protect your data, which to me is like going to be automatically stronger than any safe or gun or any protections made by humans, right? So there was kind of this like really metaphysical realization where there's like these laws of the very universe that can be exploited in a way to actually protect people in ways that, you know, is more trustless, I suppose. Wow. I've never really thought about it that way. That's cool. I actually, to your point, Liz, of like, if there's a specific moment that kind of makes you realize something, 
I think in in most people's case, it is a very gradual thing where yeah. you kind of slowly realize something. I actually got this question earlier today. If I got involved in blockchain stuff because of ideology or because of technology, like, am I just interested in the tech or is there an ide- ideological goal in it? And I mostly like 90% joined because of the tech. It's just like interesting code to write <laughs> and like interesting problems to solve. And then over the past two years, I would say it's almost it's gone like maybe not completely flipped but certainly like 50 50 or or more towards ideology because because i like you keep seeing especially being in this space you keep seeing these stories of like facebook abusing their power or google abusing their power and like you, you meet people like tim tim berners lee who's like saying that he like regrets creating the the web because it's it's become the centralized tool of of control of election manipulation and all the other bad things and you're kind of like well actually things are pretty bad we need to do something about it we need to make something better um but i it, it's curious like my end of of my answer to the person earlier today was like still pretty hopeful i think we can do something but what do you guys think in terms of like do we can we actually make a difference can we prevent the, the these powers that exist from from taking the control that they have yeah it's always an interesting question to think that can you even separate ideology and technology i think that you i think that you saying that 90 percent versus 10 percent it seems to me like the best way to to think about that that it's like a scale but you can't ever go fully off one way or the other <laughs> otherwise no. yeah. yeah otherwise why would you be interested in the technology or yeah, vice a, versa yeah yeah can you solve it? Well, humans. Oh, humans. I think that we're, we're quite cyclical in some of the things that we do. We try to course correct through our actions, and then we find ourselves going the opposite direction too far. And I think that it's sad to hear that people would regret, like that Tim Berners-Lee regrets the internet, because at the same time, it, it did so much good for people. And yes, it's been and twisted for some people's power. But I think every technology that we create is going to do that. And so I think if you go into building technology thinking that you're going to solve problems and that it's going to be a static end, that's incorrect. That it's much better to go into technology thinking that I'm going to help the course correction for a period of time. And then I hope somebody else comes along and course corrects me later. And that's just a, a much more reasonable approach to... The technology, yeah, because I think what can happen if you focus too much on the ideology side of it, thinking that you know what's best, first off, that's a bit of hubris there, (laughs) that we should all be humble about the technology we create. And then, yeah, if you think that, then you're going to get caught up in that and drinking the Kool-Aid. I don't know if that's a good phrase to use, but you're going to get caught up in the ideology and lose track of the actual technology. Isn't the expression the road to hell was paved with good intention. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think everyone, about that a lot. Yeah. Everybody who creates technology, they, they create it. They have, and I think also this goes to the technology without ideology. I think that that's also absolutely false that every time you create technology, you have some sort of belief system that is functioning behind what you design and what you create. You might just not be fully aware of it you might not be completely intending certain things but there's those beliefs and biases are getting baked into whatever you create and so it's much better to just be aware that you're doing that um but yeah your ideology comes through i think i totally agree with everything that liz said i think it would be kind of a mistake to think that there is some sort of overarching goal and that once that goal is achieved that everything is good it's just kittens and puppies and unicorns and rainbows we have to always be continuously kind of refining our commitments and our goals along the way and of course those goals and commitments might change as things shift and develop themselves anyways when it comes to privacy specifically my issue or like the the thing that i battle with is actually not technology because i i have some sense of the technological solutions that exist to address privacy problems my issue is more with like you said humans just people aren't interested in privacy most people don't care about privacy and are happy to give all their data to facebook right now i feel like when when facebook and 
all of these things came out and people were like, some friends of mine started to share a lot. And then you read these stories of people who like would share every moment of their lives with the world. That was nuts to me. Having been born in the eighties and like growing up in the eighties and nineties, pre-internet a little bit, I was always taught not to share everything. You don't, you don't like tell people your social security number. You don't, share your password. You don't like, you don't do that. And then I'd see these people sharing so much of their lives. And actually I became far more open and far more like Sherry than I used to be. And now there's sort of a a sense of like, wow, I totally, I don't think I got swept up in it the way that some people did, but I definitely, I shared a lot of stuff on Facebook, pictures, my face, like those things that in the past we, I would have been very wary of. Yeah. Well, Facebook was created to help you share. So you were being set up through user interfaces, through encouragement, through like all these different things. Like the technology was built to encourage you to share, not to encourage you to be private. But this goes back to that point that your history kind of brought up, this idea of the privacy and the transparency. Yeah. Because, and I think that's sort of where, where Chris, maybe a lot of your work comes in, where it's if what you need to find, I guess what you're looking for often is this way to design a system where the right things are kept private and yet a lot of things are checkable and there's a lot of things that are transparent. Yeah. And it's this balance that needs to be made correctly. Yeah. We should definitely talk about this. And I think this problem is especially difficult when we're talking about cryptocurrencies um, and accepting payments for subscriptions specifically, which has kind of been this, this issue that we've been grappling with um, at least authority Right, because on, on the surface level, it seems like using cryptocurrencies for payments seems to be antithetical to like the subscription model, right? Because the cornerstone of like subscription usability kind of comes down to this notion of pre-authorized payments, where you are authorizing some other party to do certain things on your behalf. But then when we're talking about cryptocurrencies, the kind of primary allure, at least within Bitcoin, is to be your own bank. That is to remain completely independent of these third-party payment processors, right? Now, of course, there are some efforts like um, EIP-1337 that aim to provide subscriptions on the blockchain, right? Uh, But those kind of lack privacy. So you have this radical transparency where everything is on the blockchain and everybody can see what people subscribe to. But, you know, maybe you don't want to do that. So, yeah, there's also this other end of the problem, which are the privacy concerns. So if we kind of set aside for the moment the issue of how difficult it is to buy and use cryptocurrency and how rare it is for merchants to accept it, uh, I want to say that it can be relatively easy for a sufficiently technically inclined person to make, you know, this one-off purchase that doesn't disclose very much data about themselves. So I could go down to the farmer's market, for example, in person with my phone, and I could tunnel home through a VPN to like my Zcash full node and remotely broadcast a transaction over Tor that would be sufficient to purchase a chicken without telling the merchant anything about myself, right? In this like totally private manner. Uh, but I mean, this feels pretty extreme. And in most just one note, yeah. Uh, couldn't you also just pay pay with cash? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to- to- totally right. But when when we're talking about like societies of the future and how everything is going online, um, I think in, in in the future it's going to be increasingly rare to actually pay with cash. Right? We we see in Sweden right now, cash is pretty much non-existent. Nobody uses it anymore, and so we're going to be seeing more movements like this where everything's going to be done online. We see things with. Apple's payment system and the one on Android, I don't know what it's called. And cryptocurrencies are kind of supposed to be um, an alternative to these things, right? Yeah, um, so I think your example of going yeah. to the farmer's market to buy a chicken <laughs> for and wanting to cash through it was awesome. I think that we, yeah, we should use cash for that maybe. But but what if I want to do an online order of a chicken? <laughs> yeah, it depends on who in the community yeah. you ask. Like if you talk to an average Bitcoiner, probably quite a lot of them would say, "Well, then you're depending on the government, which you don't want to do." To, with to cash. Use cash, if you use cash, oh, yeah, of course, yeah. There's different <laughs> the, arguments. The government for that is the third-party payment provider here. Yeah, which... this is true. Actually, yeah, the paper's value is trusted because of their yeah, because of their position in the world, yeah, their power, yeah, yeah. And it's and it's tricky too when we're talking about subscriptions um, as well because like you could do a one-off payment in like a fairly private way 
But if you're entering into this like subscription type of relationship, like say I'm going down to the farmer's market every day to buy a chicken, right? I start to leak all kinds of metadata that could then be used um, to personally identify me, right? So if, for example, you know, the farmer sees a black motorcycle show up just before I appear before him, um, and if it disappears later, the farmer could start to know that, hey, maybe I drive a black motorcycle. And, you know, over time, maybe the farmer can begin to profile me. He could predict my chicken consumption habits. You know, maybe one day I buy a lot of chicken and so the farmer can deduce that I'm throwing a party with chickens. Or then maybe this one week comes along where nobody eats chickens. Maybe it's a religious holiday where people eat fish instead. And if I don't show up that week, you know, maybe the farmer can know that I follow that religion. And, you know, of course, this is just a silly example, and I probably should have thought more before I started speaking, but <laughs> the essential point kind of remains that even if we have this like totally private transaction that reveals no information about me, the behaviors that I partake in before and after certainly can be used to, I guess, profile me, right? And so, and given enough time and re repetition, we'd kind of produce enough metadata points that more complete behavioral profiles can be built about us. And so if we're like absolutely serious about privacy, we kind of have to take those sorts of things into account, um, right? Because like right now we have lots of options for, you know, periodic payment protocols, like things that aren't private, like credit cards and EIP 1337. Uh, and we also have options for private payment protocols like Zcash, Shielded Transactions or Monero. Uh, but we don't actually have payment protocols that are both private and periodic which is kind of something that we're struggling with right now and hoping to solve given how it meshes with our business model. Your example may sound a bit silly, but this is obviously things that are happening every day, all the time. Like whenever you go shopping mm -hmm. at Amazon, they're profiling you and you're starting to see ads on the rest of the internet and you're constantly being manipulated to try to get you to spend more money on things you probably don't want. And like I've, I've worked in the software as a service industry where profiling, quote unquote, uh, users is like, that's what you do. That's what you do to get your business profitable. You you look at the behaviors and, and the subscriptions of your users and there are services to cross correlate your subscriptions with other services subscriptions so that you know like, oh, this guy is a big spender over there and he likes that feature on that service. So I'm going to up upsell him this feature on my service and get more money. This happens all the time. And um to me, to me, privacy is really about control over data. So like what you're talking about, like transparency versus privacy, what do you share or not share? To me, it's all around like having control over what I share with whom. Absolutely. You should have the choice. And I think that, that, that that's, yeah, that's what we try to do with privacy enhancing or privacy protecting technologies is to give people that choice and, and to help educate them about like, what are the repercussions of sharing information in this particular scenario? Because this is also a difficult thing about privacy too. And transparency is for each individual where you draw the line for those things. It's going to be different and to help people kind of exercise that. And I think people get privacy. You were saying earlier that maybe people don't really think about privacy or they don't need privacy as much these days or don't want it or whatever. And I think people do just, they're just not trained as well in the digital world because of these business models, because of these kind of, um, these companies, how, how people have handled data for the last 10 years, 15 years. It's been in a way that we've all kind of been trained, like you were saying too earlier, that you've been, you were trained to share. And I think we just kind of have to train ourselves to, you know, come back to the other side of, okay, wait, I need to, I need to think about this decision. I can't just go along with what the companies, what the, whatever the people want me to do. I need to make a real decision here. And we can do that in other areas of our lives, like uh, our physical, like privacy about our, our bodies, privacy about the places that we live. We're all trained as children. We're trained, maybe not all, all people, but a lot of, you know, it varies from culture to culture, but there's always some type of keeping something to yourself versus sharing with other people around you, whether it's actually used the term privacy or different things. It, it, there's different ways of looking at it, different cultures, but it exists that as humans, we want to keep some stuff to ourselves. But do you think, I mean, I like your, I liked your idea of course correcting and I like it in this context, especially because if you like, if you look at younger people right now, do you think that they are getting 
more private? Do you think, do you think they care more about privacy? Because what I see is like a younger generation sharing way more than we did. Even if a younger generation might be more culturally attuned to sharing and less towards privacy, privacy altogether will never disappear from them. Uh, and so I think that there will be course correction inevitably because they'll, they'll, they'll realize that something's maybe missing or that something's not comfortable and maybe they'll correct it some other way. I think our generation kind of like started out from you don't share anything at all. And then we've been trained to share more and it kind of went overboard. And I think we're kind of pulling, we, we are old enough to sort of see the news and see through some of the behavior manipulation that companies are trying to pull on us. And we were starting to pull back a little bit. Uh, and the, but the younger generation, I agree, to some extent are sharing much, much more. But they're also doing it in like Snapchat, where they're just sharing with the people that they select who they want to share with. And it's ephemeral, quote unquote. It's not really because you can probably somewhere, it, whatever. Huh? It's probably still somewhere on a <laughs> yeah. server. But but like conceptually, at least to them, they think that it's ephemeral and will disappear after 24 hours. So in some in some ways, I think they're more conscious of public internet wide sharing. And that whatever you put on the internet is there forever. And so kind of steer themselves towards these services that lets you share with a smaller circle of friends and in some way. So, so you think that there's almost like an unconscious limiting of information, even though they're using services that aren't really secure in any way, yeah. but like at least conceptually, yeah, that, that actually makes sense. Because people want privacy. They do. People do want to control what's shared about your, I mean, it's just natural. We don't want to go around just telling everybody what we're thinking, what we're feeling. We want to present ourselves a particular way. This is, I, this comes back to that whole identity that we, we in different circumstances show different sides of our, ourselves and with different conversations we share different knowledge about ourselves and so i just think that that will never fully disappear so these comments of privacy is dead or you know the younger generations aren't going to know privacy the way that we did no they'll, they'll figure it out they'll just find a different way because it's just human let's go back to the p4 case because i think the example that you gave chris was really it was actually i liked it it was it's cool like it i think we could get inside it but what would it like, I kind of want to, I wanted to think of like a real live case of something like this. Like, how would somebody actually use it? Would it be an individual would use it to pay their subscriptions? Or would it be like companies using it? Um, both, both, actually. Because, um, again, you have the relationship of a customer to a merchant. You have somebody who is basically paying for a service to the merchant and, um, their activities in, in what they do, like Chris was talking about that metadata that they're, they're leaving the profiles that be, can be created about them. The, the customer should have some control over that data. Not only should they know that data, that, but they should be able to determine who they share that with, who, um, who knows these things about them. And you can't have any of those choices without privacy features, basically, that if you have everything open, then the person loses that control over that data. And so we give people that control over that data. And then if they do want to share it, they can, but at least they have a choice. But um, yeah, this metadata that their their activities, their purchasing activities, um, you know, I think that this also becomes more important as we get into territory where people can start to maybe even customize those types of things um, with New technologies like cryptocurrencies, being able to do microtransactions, like we're seeing all kinds of cool things happening that you could start to really, instead of signing up for plan A, B, and C, you could have like customized plan for you. And then that, because, because you now have these different choices that you can do because you can do micropayments and certain things. And so all of a sudden the metadata is much more personalized than perhaps it even was before. So there's the level that Chris was talking about with his chickens. And like, you know, if you're going to the chicken market every day, like he was saying, I like the fact that you could sort of, even from that example, though, start to see like what somebody's religion is. Yeah. You can start to build a story. And, and I think that the more fine, the more granular we get with the options that we give people, the story becomes even more detailed too. And so it becomes even more important to have some element of choice of what you're sharing. And I think a lot of what we see with the current services is that if you need to go stop one of your subscription payments, you have to go to the, the merchant's website. You have to go to their service and you have to go make those choices there. You have to tell them to stop charging you. 
Why, why should they be the ones controlling that information? The customer should be able to say on their side what they want to do with their subscriptions. They should be the ones who have everything centralized for themselves, as opposed to maybe even having to go to five different merchants to change your subscriptions and stuff. Yeah. And like those service providers like to make it as hard as possible to shut it down. <laughs> like they're, that, that's a trend in SaaS businesses is like the general like growth hacking trick <laughs> for the past couple of years has been don't allow a user to shut down their subscription on the site. They have to call in to do it. Because that prevents people from turning it off <laughs> and, yeah. and just keeps them on, on the payroll for uh, or, longer. Or like, you must give us three months notice or you must give us... I mean, yeah, or a variety of things. It's actually like a killer feature of PayPal in some ways is if you subscribe to something through PayPal, you can go in on PayPal and shut down that subscription. Oh, yeah. So you can kind of centrally manage it still relying Through everything on paypal <laughs> but it's still it's one step up and it's sort of it's actually a thing that people talk about it's like oh no you should you should sign up using something like paypal because it gives you that control it gives you the power to shut it down yeah i think what liz said earlier is is basically it right um like in all of our other products we really try to adhere to this privacy by design set of principles so we really want to put power into the hands of the users, but we kind of noticed this great inconsistency because on the one hand, you know, we provide this great uh, cloud storage service, which has some really great privacy and security properties. But on the other hand, when they go to sign up for it, you know, they have to use something like Stripe or Chargebee, this, you know, third party set of providers, um, in which case, you know, they just start to lose a lot of that privacy rate from the get go. And so I think, on the one hand, yeah, we really want to accept payments in a way that's consistent with the values and the the design that we already have in our products. Um, and on the other hand, I, I think we just want to set a higher standard, right? Um, we kind of want to maybe motivate other people to try and do things the right way um, to kind of give power back to the users themselves. I think that this the giving people the power, that, I mean, this is the idea with cryptocurrency too. and you know, decentralization and removing some of these third parties and being able to, I think you said earlier, be your own bank. <laughs> but yeah, there's this idea that you should be able to, yeah, that, that you decentralize with your payments. And so it, that works wonderfully, like Chris was saying, with one-time payments, but that doesn't work so well when you start having any kind of patterns or connection or this like this these different pieces of data that you can sew together or you can you can correlate with other data that's available out there and so that's that's what we were looking at with p4 is trying to look at that that periodicity side of it but p4 from what i understand p4 what it provides is like privacy subscription but it it's not really like your data you can pick and choose which data is shared. As far as I understand it, it's private. Yeah. Right? But do you see sort of a future where if you wanted to share your patterns that you could do that? I think this is an idea that's been floated, this idea that you could like sell your data if you wanted to and actually make something from that. If it's used in studies or, you know, demographic profiling, then you'd get something from it. But P4 itself doesn't do that. No, I understand. No, for us, we were looking at that foundational step of how do you take what's out there? How do you take the technology that exists today? How do you put it together to give people this private periodic payments? And how do we, how can we write it out? And then this protocol, this kind of protocol way, this kind of like mapping to have other people see, you can do this too. This isn't some sort of like crazy proprietary thing that we own. It was just, it's just us proving a point that this, these technologies exist to help people with privacy. You put them together in this particular fashion and here are the things that you get. Here are still the, the data that might be potentially leaked in different spots. Here's the data that is not leaked. And so this is how you, this is what kind of privacy that you get. And when it comes to sharing it back again, I mean, step one, the foundational piece is the data has to be with you. And if you had control the data, then sure. If you want to have, if, if all your subscription metadata, all your subscription details, all that information, you have it on your local machine, you have it under your control and no one else has it, then now you're in a really great position, right? Now, the, now the, ty- the, the, the rules are switched and you can say to other people, sure, I've got it. If you want to see it, I can sell it to you. And we've, we've been doing that in a whole different 
backwards fashion for the last however many years with these business models where we get the the free product in return for that data, but then we can never change our minds. We don't have as much granular control. And so if you just switch it to the other direction where you give people the control for privacy to begin with, that they have the privacy, then it's up to them if they choose to share it. They could copy and paste it and just post it on their website or something. <laughs> they could sell it. Yeah, you could get all kinds of really interesting business models could, could stem from that. But the first step that we were looking at is that you get that control back, that you get that privacy. I want to dig in a little bit more technically on P4, on what it actually is like practically is it a spec uh, a set of instructions an app or toolkit or what is it yeah so this is also the interesting thing about like chris was saying earlier that this is this is a that what p4 was more of the protocol in the sense of a set of instructions because it's not necessarily outlining completely new technology it's more about here are some pieces that exist today and this is how you can put them together in a particular fashion to get privacy. This is how you you put all these pieces together for privacy by design. And like I said, there's some analysis there. Coming back to why we actually did this, um, we had challenged ourselves because we looked and we say, okay, we operate this service. It's based on Tahoe LAFS, Least Authority File Store, which offers client-side encryption, um, sharding of this data before it leaves the person's machine, and then uh, distributed or decentralized, depending on how you set it up, storage for people. And that incorporates a lot of what we believe. It gives the control to the people of their data. Um, the storage servers that are storing the data don't need, they don't need to know anything. They're, they're, they're stupid in a sense. They don't know what they're storing. They just have a bunch of like shards of ciphertext. And that's, that's good. That, that fills out our beliefs. But then we were charging people with Stripe and credit cards. And, <laughs> and that's how we had to do it because that's how you accept payments. And then we set we and we were looking at the the personal data that we were capturing and we're like, oh, okay, so the service itself, we get nothing. But for payments for the service, <laughs> we're getting all this personal information. What are we doing wrong here? There has to be another way. And of course there's another way. There's private cryptocurrencies out there. And we just looked at Zcash in particular because because we just we knew about it and we thought that it had the features that we we liked. Um and so we started okay well we can accept zcash payments great that solves the the private transaction part but we need to have reoccurring payments we need this periodicity for the subscription and that's where we started to see that you know okay oh there's some patterns there there's some data that can be correlated so how do we remove that issue too and so for us we were trying to solve an existing problem we weren't necessarily we, we do like to think about the future and what cool things this could lead to, but we had a problem today that we wanted to fix. And so that's, it's more of that kind of instructions on how to do that now. And I have to say that it's not the most elegant solution because that would be the like four or five year vision, right? That would be, we could, we could come up with such an elegant, cool thing. Um, and we definitely do talk about that and think about that a lot, but for now, for using now, there's stuff that's already out there. And so how do we put it together? And yeah. Have you, have you already implemented that for your own service and it's, it's in place? When we first set out to do this, it was a matter of, of trying to be consistent with the values and the services that we were already providing. And so we thought, well, hey, as a first step, we could just accept Zcash payments and, and that'll kind of take care of things. And so originally that was kind of the scope of our work was that we would figure out a way to accept Zcash for the S4 service. And so we started kind of planning out how to do this from an engineering side. And we would meet maybe once a week to talk about this. And before each of these meetings, just thinking about all of these other problems that we did not address in last week's meeting. And so it felt like for about a whole month, every meeting was us going through all of these other problems and trying to pull in other technologies to help solve those problems, like the metadata collection and how to do these periodic payments, right? Um, because, yeah, so a user can easily bootstrap a subscription, but then how do we kind of prevent 
metadata leaks from happening, you know, during that process. So we talked about maybe we could use Tor there. Um, and yeah, it just kind of ballooned from there where we were continuously trying to solve problems that we had recognized in previous versions of our own work. And that's kind of what happened for about a whole week and then we, or a whole month. And then we ended up writing this paper and kind of put it out there to get some more feedback from people. Is that where, is that the stage where it's at right now? Like, is this I guess the question is like, is this a protocol that somebody could run with? Is this something that you're basically saying you're putting out in the world and you're saying like, hey, here's an, a kind of quick solution for something that is clearly needed. Go for it. Yeah, absolutely. You could implement what's there now. There's lots of room for interesting solutions. And we so we ended up including a, a future work section at the end of the paper, which I think in some ways is almost more interesting. Than, yeah. But you have to you have to read the whole protocol be- before it to kind of get the stage and then the, the, to understand the foundation of what's possible. But then in that future work, we have like a paragraph of something that could be six papers in and mm. of itself, because there's these because once you get that foundation, then there's all these interesting things that you can build on top and different ways that we can expand existing technology. For example, um, we two things in terms of messaging that we looked at was uh, with Tahoe Laughs, um, there's ways to do messages within the system. So we're thinking, okay, that could be really a different avenue for perhaps serving invoice information or for perhaps doing support or something. And so we're like, okay, yeah, we want, so that's in the future work section. We want to do more on this, in this area, in that direction. And another one that we noticed there too, is the encrypted memo field for Zcash could also be another method for sending like certain particular, like certain data back and forth in a more privacy friendly way to be able to have the merchant and the customer have these kinds of exchanges of information in a different way. And um, that super. So I think there's so much potential in all in just those two areas and lots of areas to to do more interesting technological stuff. Yeah. At the same time, though, I think we were very cognizant of not wanting to design a system that only works for our service. Right. We we were also trying to make this as generalizable as possible, which is I think part of the reason why we don't require Zcash for it. Right. Like if you wanted to use Monero, like that would work too. Um, Similarly, with our in-band Tahoe Labs communication channels, um, if like a service provider is providing something like Netflix or like a streaming video service, well, they're probably not going to use something like Tahoe Labs there. So they would probably have some other way of communicating the status of their subscriptions. So the design as it is in the paper so far is kind of like a I think it's a pretty good trade-off there where all, all of the tools that we list and the ways that they're used can be adapted by other services that are not um, our S4 service. Do you hope to go into all of that future work yourselves or is that like not within uh, the scope of what you do at the company? No, some of it we will go into, definitely. That's um, that's what we're, look- we're, we're doing a lot of conversations right now about some of those areas and, and what we're going to be doing. So you'll probably hear more from us on that front in, in a few months. Do you think, do you also look for partners or other groups to join and sort of run with parts of it? Absolutely. I, I think we would, we would be very happy if people just took that and just implemented it for themselves. I think we would, we would feel a great sense of accomplishment because we contributed to the, to the bigger world towards these goals that we care about, like, you know, in, enabling privacy for people, giving them back control over their information and stuff. So if another service wanted to implement it, then... We, we would think that was awesome. And then, yeah, if there's some way that we could partner up and help, we'd be interested in discussing it. I think one of the things that I've learned is, like in the blockchain space, is sorely lacking is productization of things. I mean, if, if we look at the centralized uh, third-party services that we use today, something like Stripe, it's literally like drop in two lines of HTML on your website and you can accept payments and subscriptions and everything. and um, to get to that same level, you need like some some toolkit for uh, a service provider to just drop something in, and then you need like on the other end for the user that comes into that website and signs up, there needs to be something MetaMask like or whatever that actually shares like creates sign like transactions and signs them and does all that stuff. And getting the UI right for this, getting the, the like the 
toolkits right, the SDKs right, and then getting all the backend infrastructure that's needed uh, right for all of that. Like that in itself is such a massive amount of work. And I kind of hope that in the spirit of this space, it isn't one company that does all of it and provides all of these things on a platter like that, that everyone kind of works on creating something together. But who knows? <laughs> well, I think if there's... I think if there's opportunity for one company to create it, there's an opportunity for multiple to create it. Somebody just has to, somebody starts it. We, we put out some information about how to, how to start doing the foundation, this like base piece. And yeah, again, hope that many people run with it in different directions. And then I think that we get a healthy, healthy ecosystem of different products and protocols and things. And as long as privacy is somewhere in there, we'll be happy. <laughs> That's crazy. I mean, what you described to like this idea of like a company swooping in and then providing everything, like in a lot of ways, Google did that with a lot of things, Facebook too, like building languages, building toolkits, easy pieces to build things. And then all of a sudden they're, they have the keys sort of to the basis of what you're doing. Not that they misuse it necessarily. It's just that they have that. And in an open source space, like, I guess you're depending on like, iterative work, library building, building on that. Do you find, like watching it for a long time, do you find it goes fast or slow? Open source? Not just general open source, but like this kind of, this privacy protecting stuff. Do you see like an uptick on that? Do you feel like more groups, more open source devs are just jumping in on that stuff? I mean, that's an, it's an interesting thing to think what what does it mean for a whole community to learn privacy? So, I mean, there are, there are people who already understand what it means to do something privacy by design. There's plenty of people out there to divert their attention to new projects in this space. That's one, that's one approach. Another thing is to take the, to help educate the people who are in the space who might not understand what it means to do privacy by design and what it means to have all this information uh, gathered what what personal information even is, what things could become personal information if correlated with other data, things like that. And I think that that's another piece that has to happen. I think there's there's different routes basically that that need to be pursued to help people understand privacy. And then also just the general awareness of privacy helps with that. Then there's definitely been an uptick of that in the last few years. I remember working in this space years ago. And I'm sure Chris had the same experience that we, you know, you be, you're around and you're watching and all of a sudden, okay, a, few, a couple more people don't look at you like you're crazy. And then a few more people are, and then, and then, and some people start to actually be interested in what you have to say. They're like privacy. That's not, that's not crazy. You actually are saying something interesting. And then before you know it, all kinds of other people are like, oh yeah, privacy is good. And then, and then GDPR comes along and you're like, oh my gosh, even the even the government is doing something about, you know, privacy for personal data. Wow. Yeah. We're definitely not crazy anymore. <laughs> so there's definitely, there's been a change over the last few years, but yeah, I think Chris is, that's Chris, that's your experience too, right? Yeah. Um, I think that there definitely has been a change. Um, like myself, I was talking about surveillance systems, you know, like long before the Snowden leaks and all, all this stuff. And I, I mean, lots of it sounds kind of tinfoil hatty, if, if that's a word. Um, and people kind of doubted that th these sorts of systems were possible. And like, now we know that they are. But I think in terms of the uptick that we've been seeing where people are suddenly more pro privacy, I'm, I'm a little bit suspicious that it's actually that genuine because I think a, a, a lot of companies, like just at the end of last year, they were kind of rushing to comply with the looming GDPR, right? Um, we, we don't know if they really want privacy or if they're just kind of saying that because now, Legally, they have to. Maybe a more recent example might be the whole Facebook debacle where they are now, you, you know, like a few years ago, they were essentially saying that privacy is dead and that now it's all about sharing and, you know, all, all of that jazz. Whereas now they're saying that they want to transform Facebook to be this more private platform. And you have all of these Facebook bosses and executives who are essentially saying that, yes, of course, we agree with privacy. Meanwhile, like one year ago, they were saying the exact reverse. So I'm not sure whether, you know, they actually care about privacy or whether they're just doing it to kind of correspond to what the law is saying or what the general sentiment is of the users. So I guess we will have to wait and see. I mean, hopefully they are. I think though, I think this is what's interesting that even if they're not genuine, it still helps us 
because basically mm -hmm. they think that it's a selling point now. And so even if some company is not genuine about enhancing people's privacy, they're now talking to their users about privacy. So any of those users who didn't care about privacy before all of a sudden are like, wait, privacy? Facebook thinks I should care about privacy or some, you know, some other company thinks I should care about privacy. So maybe I should care about privacy. And so now all of a sudden you've helped educate more people about privacy. So even if there's like fake companies or fake marketing out there, they're still helping our cause in, in the long run. True. Facebook in particular, I think was so sneaky because I think when it first arrived, it was private. Before that, there was MySpace, which was not. Facebook was the private version of these sort of friendsters, social media things, proto-social media. Do you remember that? It was like, oh, I, I only accept my friends and only my friends see what I do. And therefore it's private. And then it was like, that's why you shared. And then you shared everything. Little did you know that there was this like overarching algorithm machine kind of like going into your stuff and pulling pulling parts of that out without revealing your photos in particular, but like they would reveal all these other things. And now they're switching back. So it's, it's just interesting because it's like, yeah, unfortunately, it's hard to trust specifically that company because I feel like it creeped up on us. Yeah. I think that this is where that whole, you know, I, it makes me want to laugh when you're like private social media, because <laughs> that's like, private transparency to me because like when I hear <laughs> yeah. social media like the whole thing about social is like interacting with other humans and yeah yeah like but of course there's different levels of privacy and you know versus the other end of the spectrum of completely public and stuff like that so yeah I, I kind of get the angle but um I also yeah it, again I think it is if anything that just helps people think a little bit more about what it means to share who am I sharing it to and why am I sharing it to them? Yeah. Even if I don't trust the companies that are saying this stuff, it, I just I think it's good that people are thinking and talking about it because then maybe they'll realize how much, how, how much control they want and who they want to share it with. I think that the part that worries me more is that, that just any kind of lack of transparency from companies about what actual data that they hold about people. Cause it's one thing if I, if I, th if I think I have power to share a photograph with my friends versus my larger circle of followers versus the whole general public. But what about, what about all that correlated collected data about me? What about my the metadata? Or what about the fake patterns? facial recognition stuff? Yeah. What about all the stuff that they're, what about all of that data collected together? And this is parallel to the subscription data that like maybe one payment in and of itself, maybe one share in and of itself is not such a big deal. But when you start collecting all that metadata and you start collecting like like start to see these patterns, all of a sudden companies can know things about us that we don't know about ourselves because we don't have access to the full pool of data. And that's the part that 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 kind of transparency about that level is what is way more concerning to me that. Yeah, Facebook, and, and I feel like we're picking on poor Facebook. Facebook isn't the worst company out there. But like any company that collects lots of data on us, they know things about us, about these patterns, and that we should know too. And so again, coming back to privacy, I think the best thing that we can do is just we have control of that data to begin with, and then we know what it is. We can start running our own algorithms at home. Yeah, um, I, I I think throughout our conversation, there's been maybe this conflation of of two terms, which are confidentiality on the one hand and privacy on the other. So I think when Anna was talking about Facebook as being a private social network, I think maybe what she meant was that it was a confidential network in that you're still sharing, but you're only sharing with the people who you want to share with, right? So you are essentially empowered to determine the scope of your sharing, the scope of your transparency. But I think when we're talking about privacy, there's, there's like a different sense of it that's not merely confidentiality. I think privacy is like a broader social value and that we're maybe facing the challenge of whether or not we want to preserve privacy on like a grander cultural scale. And I think that's becoming a much more difficult thing to defend because yes, I mean, teens these days, maybe they only want to Snapchat with certain people and they might think of that as privacy, but what that actually is, is confidentiality. And what maybe we want to encourage is for this, this more global adoption of true privacy, because as we see, you know, there's been this massive collection of metadata about us 
and it's going to you know cause this this fairly radical cultural shift so i mean we we could talk about something as silly as like that black mirror episode called nosedive i i, I don't know if you all have seen that but in the show there is this everybody. there's this girl yeah and and like she basically lives in this world where every every person and every action essentially gets a rating from zero to five stars. And whether or not you can move upwards in society is going to be determined by your personal credit score. And we're seeing this happening now in China, where like the Chinese government is essentially hoovering up all of this data about what people do, what people purchase, right? And, and they're using that to determine I guess, where they fall in the kind of stratified society. And so I think if we really want privacy, we have to look at it far beyond mere confidentiality and look at it in terms of like a global or cultural thing. Yeah, so unfortunately, I think we, we have to wrap at some point. It's a bit, been a very fascinating conversation and uh, yeah, I could keep talking about this forever. But before we sign off, are there any places that people should be looking for your stuff for the P4 paper? Uh, where can I find more? Where can I read up on this? Uh, if you want to see the P4 paper that we have published, you can find it on our website. It's on our blog. We did a post about it, and we can also add a link here too. Yeah, no problem. We'll put it in the show notes. Well, thank you both for joining us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks a bunch. It was fun. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. <laughs>